0: Case number 22-3570 from the District of Minnesota, Breach Companies versus Insert et al.
1: Mr. McCarthy.
2: Good morning. It may it please the court. I represent appellant reach companies. Uh, this is a dispute about efforts in early in the pandemic to acquire hand sanitizer. Uh, it was hard fought in the district court. The jury sided with NuCert, my adversary. Uh, but the jury was not given a fair opportunity to decide the case. Uh, nor was it provided with sufficient evidence to support the lost profits damages award that it made. The first, there are three independent issues that we raised in our brief, although they are in some sense related. The first issue is uh, whether the district court erred when it, ruled that the, uh, when it ruled rather late in the case that um, the delivery terms of the purchase orders at issue were unambiguous. Uh, that's a legal question, whether a contract term is uh, ambiguous and it's subject to de novo review. Second, was there sufficient evidence to support the lost profits award? We submit there was not. And third, the district court should not have permitted New Cert to impeach Mr. Ehrlich uh, through use of prior convictions under Federal Rule of Evidence 609A or B. On the ambiguity point,
1: the delivery terms in the purchase orders are ambiguous. Um, Well, now, some aren't. Right, counsel? Boy, I looked at each one of these. And some say, must be shipped no later than this date.
2: Some say must be shipped in the notes. the must
1: be shipped are not ambiguous, counsel. Uh, I can't well, think of stronger we, words for a, uh, uh, someone to use in business. than uh, must be shipped by a certain date, must have this, note ship location. You, know, you look down this, and goodness gracious.
2: Your Honor, I, I respectfully disagree, but now I Now, even know.
1: on those two or three that have three or four musts
2: in them? Uh, I disagree with even the ones that have musts in them. Now, Lots some, of musts. Some yeah. do not. Okay, oh, so, no, no. Most don't. And we're talking about delivery terms here. We're not talking about do they need to include caps or pumps or something else. We're talking just about the delivery terms. Some say to be shipped by, but elsewhere. Some say nothing. Go ahead. Some say nothing.
1: But, elsewhere, but the dress please the must ones. Why isn't this a mixed bag of purchase orders? Some are ambiguous. Some aren't. Uh,
2: well, it it, it in that respect, it is a mixed bag, but the problem with it, why there's ambiguity, even where there's must ship by in the notes, is because elsewhere there is a field that says required ship date, uh, and there is not a date there. Um, and, and that is a, a – a, and there's also a provision that says back orders permitted. Well, Council, every says,
1: state I know of – this is Minnesota, right? This is Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. Every state I know of says you try to reconcile things like that, and isn't that easy to reconcile when you look at, like, Exhibit 20? Exhibit 20 is the one that has several musts.
2: Um, I don't agree that it's easy to reconcile. Oh, I boy. Think, um, boy. The, um, you have you have required ship date. You don't have a date. Uh, so well, it says ASAP, Councilman. It says ASAP. Yeah, and that's that explained not, in the notes. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Your
1: Honor. No, no, yeah, go ahead.
2: But ASAP is not a date. And, and then it says back orders permitted, which, uh, which means... You can fill it when there's inventory. You know, if it doesn't say back orders, It doesn't say no, it says yes, yes. on um, all of them. It says back orders accepted. On, and Correct. then there's a cancel date field, and there isn't a canceled and there aren't, are not cancel dates. So yes, they did add notes, and and the parole evidence that was introduced, that was admitted at trial, and then the jury was told to disregard was that these purchase orders were the result of. Uh, 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 followed purchase orders that had dates in those fields in the required ship date field and the, and they were rejected and so new Cert sent new purchase orders with ASAP in that field and then in some instances as you note, they had uh, additional notes in the notes field. Uh, we believe it was a question for the jury how, what the parties intended and that parole evidence shows there's another
1: one that has an exclamation point with the must and it has a request ship date. Um, I, yeah. I'm not disputing That's there's information in the note. Well, Boy, that one's not ambiguous. But they,
2: they all say ASAP as opposed to a, a, a
1: fixed oh, counsel, date. this one doesn't. Uh, this one on reach uh, page seventy five, exhibit seventy five. It
2: it doesn't have it has in required ship date field in the in, uh,
1: in required ship date. Oh no, it's requested ship date. I'm sorry. It says three nineteen. This is one that had has enchanted moments. Is that what?
2: enchanted moments? Is a broker that was Wait, that new appears on one
1: it. of them and not on the others. The enchanted moments, uh, but they
2: they they were involved in most of these. Same address, um, same everything. It, yes, but um, counsel,
1: it does have a requested ship date of March 19, 2020, Right, the one does. Uh,
2: and that, if in that case, that one is likely not at issue, Your Honor. That's not that. What I'm saying is, it's not at issue in the sense that the issue here has to do with certain dates. Uh, certain shipments that were not made that led to the lost profits awards of almost seven hundred thousand dollars. There are a whole bunch of, of POs well, and not I all the POs. Neither brief
1: identified. We had great trouble with this. Neither brief identified. Right, which exhibits were actually admitted at trial? Did you do that in your brief? We you had I, trouble I, figuring I, I, out the I 18, think, 19, 20 I think that were they were
2: all admitted at trial, Your Honor. I don't think there's any issue there.
1: Even this one that has the must ship date by three nineteen was admitted.
2: I believe if it's in the appendix, it was admitted at trial. I don't think there's any issue about okay. that.
1: That would have helped us just identify the ones because we, we struggled yeah. figuring and, out. And, and I, sorry about We got that. down to 18 or 19 or 20 of them that we're pretty sure of.
2: Um, <laughs> fair enough. I think they were they were all admitted, but the but for a number of them, payments weren't made, shipments weren't made. There's no issues there. on The, the, the ones that are specifically at issue, there's partial shipments that were made. The contention is they were untimely, and as a result, a large
1: cost profits. And the jury heard about all this back and forth, and then the judge said they're clear on their face.
2: The judge then told them not just they're clear on their face, but disregard all the evidence or much of the evidence you heard in the last uh, the first three days of trial. Disregard it because it has to do with uh, back and forth before the agreements were uh, finalized.
0: How, now, how much of that testimony, I understand you're saying there was about three days or something, is your representation. As I understand it, the district court did permit the jury to consider modifications, correct? So, can you give me a ballpark of what you think um, the divide was between that, in terms of what what evidence or testimony went to pre-contract making and what went to modification, or was there overlap?
2: Um, The way the evidence went in, it was not clearly articulated at, at times about where we're, there's emails or texts and conversations and exactly when did they occur in relation to when a PO was sent is not always crystal clear. So I'm not able to quantify that. I will tell you there was substantial evidence um, about uh, pre and pre-PO uh, evidence, and specifically the most compelling evidence from our perspective is that REACH had rejected um, the POs that had dates in the, uh, what we say is the required ship data, you know,
0: it, it, am I um, did I read it right? The district court, in addressing this issue, was of the opinion that the trial wouldn't have really been tried in any significantly different way had that ruling been um, been given before trial.
2: Um, he did say that. Um, and
0: do I, you, do you disagree? And I if, do. If and so, I just... and, and and why, particularly when you say it's kind of hard to tell the timing of some of this conversation? In other words, I'm wondering if the district court was thinking, well, I don't know when all of this was going on, so it's gonna be coming in for modification um, to, to err on the side of giving them the opportunity to, to prove that up. So I, I, I'm just wondering how, how different the trial would have been. And and maybe, of course, we can't know for sure, but. We,
2: we can't know for sure. And to be clear, if that was the district court's opinion, it did not say that. The district court did not say, I'm letting this evidence in. The district court said on summary judgment, um, there are genuine issues of material fact about the party's agreements. It said, a few days before trial, I'm denying the in motion to exclude parole evidence. Uh, Then it heard three days of testimony, and it said, I've changed my mind. I am, after the fact, I think is the words in the transcript, uh, granting uh, the Unlimity Motion to uh, exclude the parole evidence, and I'm going to instruct the jury um, appropriately. Um, how would the trial have proceeded differently? Um, I did not try the case, but I will tell you, and I told the district judge, um, if I had understood that the only evidence that was going to be admitted was for modification, I would have been very clear about that. I don't think it's appropriate to have a jury told, after it sits through days of evidence, disregard a great deal of what you just heard.
1: Counsel, Uh, is there any decision to this court that disapproves, disapproves of, criticizes that procedure? Um, I don't have a... I, don't I didn't to see it cited in the briefs no, here, I but I didn't see one that approved it
3: either.
2: Uh, <laughs> nor did I, Your Honor. Uh, I, I, and I, I don't know of too many uh, trial lawyers who would say they've had a, an experience of a judge saying, I'm letting all this evidence in. I'm only going to address this evidence. In the in ruling, he says, I'm going to address this evidence as it comes up, as there are specific objections to it. Um, of course, that sounds normal, counsel. All state that,
1: practice, right?
2: And, and he, It was federal, the federal court, but he let it all in. He let it all in, and then he says... I didn't. I shouldn't have. It, it, I shouldn't have let it all in, and I'm going to tell the jury to, to disregard it. And you combine that with the other errors, and I do want to save a little time for rebuttal, but we, we have the error on uh, admitting Mr. Ehrlich's criminal convictions, which were more than 10 years old, uh, and there was no finding of specific facts and circumstances beyond the fact that they involved dishonesty. Obviously, they involved dishonesty. Otherwise... Uh, the rule isn't implicated, but and this court has said that is insufficient. You need something more than that, um, and, uh, and there wasn't more than that. I, I'm not disputing they were they were convictions that fell within the scope of 609. Certainly they were, um, and then it's compounded when. The jury is is permitted uh, to to hear that there's a more recent conviction. We're not going to tell you what it's about, and we right. gladly didn't. But you know, um, but that shouldn't have been that that wasn't a conviction for dishonesty. It shouldn't have been allowed in under any circumstances. I, I have a
0: question about that. And I, I I'm in the in the, the world of criminal law. If you offer up on direct examination something you tried to keep out in the form of a prior conviction. You can't challenge it later. Didn't you didn't didn't you offer up sort of as a buffer in direct examination, these prior convictions with your client?
2: After the court said they're coming in.
0: Right, And I'm just saying in in in, in the criminal law context, if you take that strategy, you've lost the issue for appeal. Is that the same in this situation?
2: Um, I've not seen a case to that effect. I also haven't looked at it because it hasn't been raised, Your Honor. So I'm going to, I mean, we have looked at the at the 609 cases, but that specific question of whether you can try to preempt uh, the or blunt the effect and still preserve the issue for appeal, I will say under Rule One, Federal Rule of Evidence 103B, I mean, the, it does say you don't need to do anything more to preserve an appeal from an in-limity ruling, then have a definitive ruling. Once you have a definitive ruling, that is preserved for appeal. That would not imply that you need to continue to act as if it's not the case. Um, and I'm going to, unless the court has questions for me right
4: now, I will reserve. Well, I do you have a question? And it follows up on Judge Benton. Which are the, what are the purchase orders that are actually in question here? Um, the ones that you think the court um, made a mistake on.
2: The, the ones that are most significant, I am going to have to tell you that in rebuttal, but I, su- I suspect that um, Mr. Johnson will point you to them, and I'll confirm I mean the, whether he's the, correct. The, the I district, think
4: it's- The it, district judge had to, I mean, it, it made mathematic, mathematical calculations here and so what i'm asking which purchase orders do we really need to focus on here and and, and it's an excellent
2: question your honor and i don't
4: recall the numbers as i'm standing here um
2: but i will have that on rebuttal and i'm pretty sure mr johnson will tell you which ones they are because because the evidence at trial on lost profits was largely mr johnson uh doing the calculations and his closing uh so i'm confident he'll be able to do that for you here um thank you
4: thank
3: you Confidence is misplaced on my ability to reiterate all of that uh, here. May it please the Court, Your Honors. I'm Mark Mr. Johnson. Johnson. Thank you very much, Your Honor. I'm happy to start wherever the Court would like. Obviously, I have some remarks that I've prepared, but... Okay, can
4: you answer that question? What What are the purchase orders that we need to be looking at? Sure, Your Honor. It's actually all
3: of them, I'm afraid to say.
4: Counsel, uh, can you
1: identify them by exhibits or yeah. reference the record or someplace or a table yeah. or a chart
3: uh, or any uh, way
1: that would communicate to us what they are?
3: You got it, Your Honor. Appendix. They start at Appendix One Seventy Four. They were marked defendants' exhibits one through twenty. Now, the purchase orders, the breaches break down in a couple of ways, and so I think that's important. Um, Every one of the purchase orders had specific. Now,
1: are fourteen and fifteen in in, uh, marked and in your? they're not between pages 175 and
3: they are your honor and if you look at the bottom of the pages you can see d fourteen oh oh one d d13 12 you can see the you can see them at the bottom and let me explain how these exhibits work because i think that'll really help why don't you do that confused. in a 28
1: j letter like you should have done in your briefs
3: both of you I, I i thought we had your honor no you didn't super briefly i'll just tell you okay the proceed. front page of each of these the one that has the trial exhibit number d14 at the bottom that is the active purchase order that was accepted by REACH.
1: Well, Counsel, it has an exhibit up here, too.
3: Yeah. Yeah, uh uh-huh.
1: This was, is a, a 175 I'm looking at.
3: Yes, Your Honor. That was the deposition exhibit number, and that sticker remained on the exhibit yeah. from depositions. The trial exhibit number is marked at the bottom. And the first page where you see the D14, the trial exhibit number, that is the active purchase order that our client submitted that was accepted by the other side, by REACH. Now, following that are other documents that relate to that specific purchase order.
1: Which are very confusing to follow,
3: Understood, proceed, your and Honor. not
1: identified in your briefs. Understood. Understood,
3: Your Honor. The We can take D14 as an example, though. So D14, you can see, has specific goods that were ordered at a specific price. And this is at, uh, Appendix okay. uh, 233, Your Honor.
1: Why, do you have a reach number on them, too? I have ones that have reach numbers in the corner. Uh, reach and a number 0073 and reach and a 0075. What's that mean? There are. Yeah, what's that mean, counsel? Tell me the date of it. Does it have the logo Enchanted Moments on it? Yes or no?
3: I'm yes sorry, or no?
1: Enchanted Moments on the one you're talking about.
3: The one I'm talking about, now, Your Honor, says Enchanted Moments at the top. It does okay, not great. have Enchanted Moments logo. Okay, great. Okay. And this is in...
1: Okay, my both, my both that we thought were 14 and 15 have enchanted moments up there. Go ahead.
3: I am not sure why that is the case, why there'd be a difference, but yeah. the ones that I'm looking at, Your Honor, in uh, appellant's appendix mm-hmm. are the ones that were admitted at trial and, and reflect the accepted purchase order followed by the invoices against that purchase order. the documents. Well,
1: let me cut through because we can spend all day talking about how bad the briefs are uh, in terms of identifying this one point. But, counsel, the ones that they all say back orders accepted.
3: Yeah. So, it,
1: so is it, is, doesn't that just settle this case?
3: Uh, it, it doesn't. It does in our favor, and I'll tell you why. These purchase orders were submitted in March. Back orders accepted means that if you don't have the goods in stock today, on the day the purchase order is submitted and accepted, you do not need to reject the order. The back order may be accepted. You can have an empty warehouse today, and you can still accept the order. That's back orders accepted. ASAP, up in the top right. ASAP means you must deliver it as soon as possible. And for us, what that means is we'll open the doors and we'll accept the shipment as soon as it is ready. Must ship by.
1: Counts only two or three have must ship, right?
3: Uh, must is, is
1: only on a handful of them,
3: right? I think that is true.
1: Yes, yeah, that's true. Several of them. This is Exhibit 18. This is one I think we can talk about. Sure, Your Honor. And communicate on. Exhibit 18, for example, has nothing. It doesn't have notes. It says ASAP. Back orders accepted, yes. This is the one of March 21. This says Exhibit 18. Gosh, that's got to be ambiguous for your position.
3: Uh, this is, if I'm looking at the same one you're looking at, Your Honor.
1: It says Exhibit 18 is all mine says. And NEWS00080. Go ahead.
3: Okay. There it is, Your Honor. Thank you. Yeah. Um,
1: it has no notes, it has ASAP, and it has yes.
3: So if you, that's understood, Your Honor. And that's.
1: That's got to be ambiguous. I'll,
3: I'll agree that with that. That means
1: forever. This can come forever. Back orders can be for months and months and months and months with businesses.
3: So let me take a step back. The, the breaches that related to late deliveries that we alleged and approved at trial all related to instances where there was a must or similar language on the face of the accepted purchase order. So there were a lot I, of these. No, orders wait, I'm, I'm back delivered. on
1: the first point of where the purchase orders ambiguous as to delivery terms.
3: I will concede absolutely, Your Honor, that on some of them, it is ambiguous as to the delivery terms. Didn't the district court rule
1: the other way? Didn't the district court say they were all unambiguous?
3: I think what the district court was holding, Your Honor, was that those that had a must ship by date were unambiguous as to the delivery terms. And if we proved that they fell short by delivering after that must ship by date, then that was a breach. That was the instruction to the jury. And if I may, Your Honor, I think I need to point out that they did not object to this instruction at the charge conference. Rule 51 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure sets a very bright line rule. And this actually comes up fairly often where issues have been litigated pre-trial or on evidentiary motions during trial. And then you get to the charge conference. And the judge says, here is the instruction I am going to give to the jury. And that is the point at which Rule 51 and this Court's precedents say, you must object. And this Court's precedents say, you must propose an alternate instruction. They did none of those things. So I think we can debate these issues. And if we were here on a de novo standard of review, I still think we win, because as to the ones that were active in the case, the ones that supported the breach due to late delivery, I think those are for the reasons the court was laying out before I got up, uh, those are unambiguous. Also unambiguous are the price terms. The, the prices on every single one of these, and there, it, it could not be clearer. And yet they sought to admit evidence that the parties had, before these contracts were submitted and accepted, agreed that those prices were meaningless. They were indeterminate. They could go up at will. And they helped themselves to increasing the prices, taking money out of our client's account at the time of shipment without our client's permission. Now, all of that same evidence was also relevant to the contract modification theory, which is really the theory that was tried to the jury. At trial, most of the evidence, most of the testimony related to phone calls uh, between our clients dated after these purchase agreements were accepted. So there were allegedly phone calls where Mr. Ehrlich, their key witness, and our client's CEO, allegedly talked on the phone, and our client said, you can raise the prices. Charge me anything you want. If it says $23, charge me 25 I don't care. There's no alleged ambiguity on those price terms or quantity terms. I'll concede, Your Honor, that on those where it only says ASAP, I think you need to have some indication uh, of some discussion about, well, what does that mean? And they did. We had a lot of discussion about that at trial. But on those where it says ASAP, but also must ship by April 6, those two terms can only be read harmoniously by saying it has to be shipped as soon as possible, but no later than April 6. That's the only way to read those two without doing what they're asking this court to do, which is treat must ship by April 6 as surplus. They literally say it's an aspirational term unenforceable so your honor I I think that when it comes to the handful where the late delivery was the breach they are unambiguous but as to many others that supported our damages claim the, the late delivery wasn't the issue they did deliver goods they just charged us more than is allowed on the written purchase orders and there's no argument here in the briefs or anywhere else that there's any ambiguity about a purchase order that says 23.50 per gallon. And yet they charged us more. And they say, we told them we could do that on the phone. That's modification. That's fine. And that's what went to the jury. And the jury didn't buy it. They didn't believe it. And so, Your Honor, I think that on the appropriate standard of review, given that they never objected to and, in fact, approved this jury instruction, literally said on the record at the charge conference, that's consistent with the common law when the jury instruction was read out. Never proposed a different instruction on the appropriate standard of review. We think this is an easy one and that the district court should be affirmed.
4: Question on the, uh, I have a question on the lost profits evidence. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, Is it, am I pronouncing that correctly, Newsert? Newsert, Your Honor, yes. Is Newsert essentially a broker? Uh, I think that's a
3: fair statement in this context. Yes.
4: So, uh, so, so when it, s- it submits the purchase orders, they're they're instructing that the product be delivered to a to a customer directly Pop- to a customer of NewServe.
3: That's right. And the evidence at trial, Your Honor, was that the cost of shipping was reaches to bear. So, if the order was for a hundred thousand gallons of hand well, sanitizer, well, my
4: question is that the testimony on lost profit seemed to be pretty kind of bare bones and. Simplistic.
3: Sure, it okay, is. This
4: is what we were going to pay. This is what we would have gotten. Yep. The difference is our lost profit. But so,
3: couldn't be. Simpler. Is it that?
4: Is it that simple? It oh, is, is, exactly is there, is there simple. no overhead that was uh, that w- that was avoided?
3: No. Nope. Uh, because the shipping cost. These were drop shipments, Your Honor, and so. We place the order. We've got a source that's promised it can deliver these goods by April 6th or April 14th, whatever the must-ship-by date was. And that's actually a critical point. The, the lost profits really goes to the handful where we had an identified purchaser, purchaser excuse me, on the back end who would purchase all the goods if they could be shipped by that drop-dead
4: date. So news, so Zert, who gave the testimony about lost profits?
3: Uh, David Serrata, the CEO of New So, so also, uh, really...
4: Broker. He could have. He could have conducted this business from a laptop in his living room. Absolutely, could have, Your Honor. And
1: what does the record reflect about how the business was conducted? Uh, was there any evidence of overhead, marketing, advertising, other, other? Uh,
3: no, there wasn't. There didn't need to be because when it comes down well, to it, on this issue, Your Honor, let me step back. The case law ahead. that is cited in, in the other side's papers all relates to lost profits claims where there is a speculative sort of. This is, a big, this is going to be a big deal. This is a new venture, and it's going to be great, and we'll make millions if, they, if the other side just hadn't messed it all up for us. That's not this case. This isn't any real different than if somebody advertises a boat that they paid $10,000 for, and someone says, I'll pay twenty, and then someone mucks it up. The $10,000 difference is, is the profit they would have earned. That's this case. This could not be simpler. And the testimony was presented at trial. It was not objected to. It was not cross-examined. It was not argued against in closings. None of this came up until post-trial when, all of a sudden, they say, my goodness, you needed so much more evidence than you presented. The evidence was presented. The jury's verdict is perfectly consistent with the evidence. And if we're going to start having new trials where evidence is submitted under oath without objection that is consistent with the jury verdict, we're going to have a lot of new trials. So I, I think that one is an easy affirmance again, Your Honor. And again, it's it's a it's a deferential standard of review. I'll also note Judge tostrud the district court judge, heard the testimony. And he found Mr. Serrata's testimony to be credible. Um, I, I only have a couple of minutes left. I'm happy to address the court's questions. I do think I should touch at least briefly on the admission of Mr. Ehrlich's criminal history. Um, I think there is an interesting issue here that I don't think this court has squarely faced before, which is whether this 10 years uh, look back under Rule 609 for automatic admissibility, um, whether periods of confinement that are extended into the 10 years uh, due to supervised release violations should count. As near as we can tell, every court that's addressed that issue, not yet this court, has held that if the period of confinement for a qualifying crime is extended for a supervised release violation, then that counts. And you get that in automatically. And I think it would be helpful to courts and practitioners for this court to articulate that rule here. But it doesn't actually have to, because the court did make well-founded factual findings to support its conclusion that Mr. Ehrlich's criminal history including the Ponzi scheme conviction, where he pretended to be Kermit the Frog's voice to steal money from people, and a series of other crimes in the several years right before that crime started, were all uh, that that string uh, that was broken only when he was in federal prison uh, was itself exceptional. And I think the key point that also makes this case exceptional is that Mr. Ehrlich was their only witness. Who could say they told me these prices could be increased? They told me we could deliver less, we could delay shipments. He was the only person who claimed to be on the phone with our clients. We weren't attacking some bit player to sully reach. So his some other people heard accept.
1: conversations, though, counsel, right? <laughs> well, some uh, other people in the room said they heard conversations, right?
3: I, my, I'm out of time, may oh, I address a no, you, question? You must answer. The or, record, Your Honor, is, or I'll have
1: gone to another rant. Go ahead.
3: <laughs> My, the record, Your Honor, is that uh, Reach's CEO testified on direct mm-hmm. that he over, that he heard a conversation. Right. But on cross, he admitted he had not heard it. On cross, when I impeached him with his deposition testimony, he admitted he had not heard And that was the only point. overheard
1: conversation? That
3: was the only overheard I, thank conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Your Honor. Sir. Sure. It's a pleasure to be here. Let me be
1: sure there are no other questions. Other questions?
3: Okay. Thank you very much.
1: Sure.
2: Well I would like to address any questions the court has, but otherwise i 'll hit a few points quickly um, on um, the uh, on which are which invoices are at issue uh, or purchase orders i 'm sorry i 'll happily agree with mr johnson they 're all at issue um, the, there are reasons why some are more at issue for some arguments than others, but uh, the, it is true that the district court found that they were all uh, uh, unambiguous, and I don't think that is sustainable on appeal. Um, as to whether or not we waived the argument, because uh, because Reach, uh, Reach's counsel did not object to the jury instruction, we addressed that at length in the brief, but um, there, was a, there was a clear and limiting ruling. Rule 103 of the Rules of Evidence says that's preserved if there's a definitive ruling. um, When the jury, and and this had all been occurring on the night of the third um, day of trial, and then the fourth day was the last day, there was a brief filed. The judge said, "I allowing you to file this brief to preserve the issue in the post trial ruling he he said uh, that we had complied with the spirit of rule fifty one in any case, and he did not find that it was not preserved. He found that he had made the right decision on whether or not the purchase orders were unambiguous. so I respectfully strongly disagree with the suggestion that this was waived because when presented with two jury instructions, neither of which both of which were going to exclude parole evidence, counsel said you know, this ship has sailed, I'm, I'm picking, I, I agree one of these is better than the other, and did not need to at that point after the judge had just said, I'm ruling against you on this. Um, reiterate that. Uh, on on the lost profits issue, um, there was no evidence of overhead. And one way to think about this is what if there'd been an expert witness? Often in lost profits cases, you have an now, expert counsel, witness. Counsel, you're
1: going hypothetical. Tell me in this record, was there any evidence put in that they had the typical kind of overhead expenses or fixed expenses or any kind of expenses at all. I believe this that, wasn't done from the proverbial home office. I believe there's
2: evidence that they had a warehouse somewhere that wasn't used here. But, but what they want to say is this is, this is a bit like, uh, and you, you may not like this, but the, I have happened to have been involved in firm management over the years. Partners will come in and say, you don't need to allocate overhead to us. Our, my practice is all incremental profit. And that's essentially what they're saying here. We didn't have anyone, uh, we didn't have any employees. Uh, there, if you look in the record, there are other people, Surrata family members, who are uh, sending invoices and things. So, And my time is up, but I think they needed overhead. The case law says they needed to show overhead. They didn't, and this, the evidence was otherwise extremely scant uh, in support of
1: their lost profits claim. Let me check for questions and questions. Questions? Thank you. Okay. Thank you both for your argument. Case number 22 3570 is submitted for decision by the court. Ms. McKee.